Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Devin Lavender, a clinical assistant professor at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy in Athens, Georgia. Today, I will be talking with Dr. James Kalis, a director of pharmacy with the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. We are faculty for an educational initiative titled Shining a Light on Undiagnosed Nonvalvular Atrial Fibrillation, which is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash NVAF. Thank you for joining us today and let's get started. So Jamie, as a, a pharmacist with a practice in an ambulatory care clinic, I know that I certainly have discovered several issues with my patients that hadn't previously been diagnosed. But I'm curious why you think screening for undiagnosed AFib should be something pharmacists are thinking about at this time. Well, it's really, I think, an issue that's been gaining a lot of increased awareness lately. There's been numerous studies and meta-analyses that really demonstrate the significance of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation as a problem. There's an international collaborative called the AF Screen International Collaboration that it was really formed for the purpose of raising awareness around undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. And I think if you think about what's the consequence of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation, it's stroke. And stroke has pretty significant impacts on quality of life and you know, functional ability of patients following a stroke. So if you can identify patients that maybe are at risk and theoretically do something about that, uh, you're going to potentially improve patient outcomes pretty significantly. Some other factors, there's been big advances in technology. Sensors and things like that are inexpensive and readily available. And so we have technology today that from an arrhythmia monitoring standpoint didn't really even exist maybe 10, 15 years ago. You used to have to walk around with a a box, a Holter monitor box, Maybe you would catch an arrhythmia if you wore it for long enough. But uh, now there's patches that you can just stick onto the chest and and walk around and catch arrhythmias and other types of technology like wearables and things that uh, connect to your cell phone. So there's there's great advancement in technology and the ability to, to catch atrial fibrillation and find atrial fibrillation is has improved greatly. But I think the biggest thing is that the rate of AFib is is already high. It's increased threefold since maybe 50 years ago. And I think the biggest reason that we need to think about identifying undiagnosed atrial fibrillation is that there's a lot of patients out there who are at risk. If you think about the baby boomers being one of the largest segments of the U.S. patient population, coupled with the fact that there's already millions and millions of patients with atrial fibrillation, and that's expected to go up in the next 20 or so years by many millions more. So there's a lot of at-risk patients, and we know that we're just scratching the surface with the patients that we know have atrial fibrillation. There's a significant number out there that are unknown with atrial fibrillation. So I think that 
that kind of segues nicely into the, the next question is you mentioned undiagnosed AFib can lead to strokes. And that's something that we certainly want to avoid in our patients. So you mentioned that AFib's on the rise as the baby boomers continue to age, but how common is undiagnosed atrial fibrillation? Well, that really depends on how you try and identify it. In a lot of the studies, there's basically two ways, two methods for identifying undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. One is to take a population of patients who present with a stroke and then look back and see, do they actually have atrial fibrillation as the preceding event that caused that? The other way that these patients are identified is when a patient needs an implanted device. And so that device, like implanted cardioverter defibrillator, has continuous monitoring, and you can interrogate that device and identify if a patient has atrial fibrillation that, that occurs at some point, whether the patient has symptoms or not. If you look at those studies, the rate of AFib detection is roughly 7 to 35%. So I think you could ballpark the, the rate of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation in the 20-ish percent range. And then about 5 to 10% of patients in this undiagnosed population actually have a stroke. So the stroke risk is fairly high, especially when you think about the negative outcomes of a stroke. Risk factors are also an important consideration. The more risk factors for atrial fibrillation your population might have, the more or the higher the likelihood that the patients will have undiagnosed atrial fibrillation as well. So some of those higher rates tend to be in higher risk patient populations in those studies. And I know that we touched on some of those studies in our webinars that we did, but I want to take just a second to talk about those a little bit more because to me it seems like Even just a few minutes of a detected AFib on an implanted defibrillator could result in a patient being considered to have AFib. So is atrial fibrillation that only occurs for a few minutes really that important and something we need to consider? That's a good question. I'm not sure that we have a complete answer to that question just yet. It hasn't really fully been studied. It does seem from some of the different studies out there that the longer the duration of AFib, the more likely it is to be a significant diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. There's been one study where the relative risk of stroke was increased in with any atrial arrhythmia that lasted at least a minute. But when you looked at the relative risk of stroke for patients who had an arrhythmia greater than five minutes, it was even higher than the greater than one minute. And so there seemed to be a temporal relationship there. And then in another study, there is was a relative risk of stroke that was significant only in the population who had atrial fibrillation that was identified to last greater than 24 hours. So it definitely seems to be that the longer the AFib is present, the more likely it is to at least have a negative impact on patient outcomes. Uh, but it's definitely something that we need to a little more study for about, and, and it, we need some guidance as to when do we actually treat atrial fibrillation when it's identified? How long does it need to be present in order to treat it? Yeah, I think that's a good point that, that'll lead us to this next question. What data is out there that can help us to know when treatment is necessary, when we found someone that maybe we screened that we found that has atrial fibrillation? Well, there are two studies that have been completed that I'm aware of. One is called the stroke stop study, and the other was called a loop study. 
And their general design of these studies is that a fairly large population of patients is screened for atrial fibrillation. And then if they are found to have atrial fibrillation, they are offered oral anticoagulant therapy. And the primary endpoints of these studies have been stroke and systemic embolism. In in the stroke stop, they also looked at bleeding as well. But stroke and systemic embolism is kind of is the primary endpoint. And unfortunately, these two studies have conflicting results. In the case of stroke stop, there was a significant reduction in that primary endpoint of stroke and systemic embolism, whereas in the loop study, there was a slightly higher rate of the primary endpoint in the control group, the group that did not receive oral anticoagulants. However, it was not statistically significant. Now, I do think there are some fairly significant differences in the, the study designs in these studies. In one case, the stroke stop was over 2,800 or 28,000 patients, whereas there was only about 6,000 in the loop study. So there could have been power issues. The rates of, of the primary endpoint differed pretty greatly between the two studies. So there might be some design issues that led to those differences, but, but it also could have related to the fact that the way that patients were identified as having atrial fibrillation, stroke staff looked at patients who had atrial fibrillation identified on electrocardiograms that were obtained over a 14-day period. So they had multiple ECGs and then identified AFib, whereas in the loop study, they used one of those patch recorders and any fib greater than six seconds was counted as AFib. And so if you think about it, it may be that these stroke stop patients had more or longer duration AFib, and that's why you're able to catch it on an ECG, whereas the loop study patients maybe had a very short duration of AFib that counted as, as AFib, and perhaps that's a difference. But it's still certainly, I think, an open question about when it's appropriate to treat patients who have atrial fibrillation identified by screening. So what it sounds like to me is we need more information to really make a decision here. Is there anything that you're aware of that's in the pipeline? Are there any more studies that are being conducted looking into this issue? Yes. Fortunately, there are several studies that are ongoing. Most are similar to the loop and the stop stroke study. The endpoint in all of these is stroke or stroke and systemic embolism, with the exception of a study called Dancavas, which has a primary endpoint of all-cause mortality. So that might be kind of interesting to see the results of. In all these different studies, there's a variety of different screening methods used. In some cases, it's a patch monitor. In some cases, it's a single lead or three lead ECG. Sometimes it's a, a device like a pacemaker, or defibrillator, or cardiac monitor. And so different methods of identifying atrial fibrillation And then the largest of these studies is called the SAFER study, and this is going to include about 120,000 patients, so really a massive study for an atrial fibrillation trial. So that will be um, an interesting study to, to find as well when it becomes published. So I think a lot of these, collectively, a lot of these studies will help us to give us a lot more clarity around who to treat and when to treat and and what type of screening identified AFib requires treatment. Yeah, so I think that that kind of leads me to my next thought, thinking about as we're waiting on this data to come out from these studies, is it even recommended to screen patients for AFib? Well, it depends on where you look. If you look at the Australian guidelines or the European guidelines, there are pretty strong recommendations to screen patients over 65 years of age. 
I will say as kind of a side note that European patients have a a pretty high rate of atrial fibrillation. It's very common in a European patient population, and that might be why there's a little bit of a difference. Uh, Because if you look at the U.S. preventive service recommendations, it's not recommended to routinely screen patients with atrial fibrillation, although it, it is recommended that you use clinical judgment, which to me means that you might consider in certain patients that you would deem pretty high risk to do some sort of screening process. I think if you are thinking about screening, you have to keep in mind that the yield in studies of screening is generally fairly low. Maybe one to 2% of patients that you screen will actually screen positive and end up having atrial fibrillation. And so if it's easy to incorporate in your practice, I think screening makes some sense. If it's difficult though, because that low yield, it may not be a a good thing to think about right now, at least. Yeah. And so I think trying to figure out how to incorporate these types of screening practices might be something that the listeners are interested in hearing a little bit more about. Is there any guidance or any thoughts that you may have on how we could incorporate this into our practice? Well, there's two different types of screening. One is systematic screening and the other is opportunistic. Systematic screening refers to taking large populations that have certain characteristics and just screening everybody. Whereas opportunistic is probably something that fits more with a pharmacist practice because opportunistic screening is you're seeing a patient for something else. Either coming into the pharmacy to pick up a prescription, they're coming into your clinic to see you for diabetes or you know, they're going to get vaccinated and you do some sort of uh, AFib screening at that point. That would be opportunistic screening. And I think that probably would fit with the way many pharmacists practice. There is a study that was done in primary care clinics where the pharmacist was seeing patients to administer a flu vaccine and they incorporated that into their, their process with the flu vaccination and identified patients who had atrial fibrillation that way. I think Questions you have to ask is who, who do you want to screen? One, I think you you can look at things like Chad's VASC scores, maybe two or three, because there is data that suggests that the, the patients who have a Chad's VASC score of at least two have a fairly high rate of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. You might also look at certain factors that you know are associated with atrial fibrillation, like hypertension, CHF, and diabetes, or maybe patients greater than 65 or greater than 75 years of age. So figuring out who that patient population is, I think is a significant first step. And then I think you need to think of the how, you know, what's the method that you're going to use for screening. The easiest thing to do is just check someone's pulse. And if it's irregularly irregular, maybe that patient has AFib and you need to do more of a further workup. But pulse check by itself is actually prone to a lot of false positives and may not be the most effective by itself. There are some single lead ECG devices that are available, things that even connect to smartphones that are fairly inexpensive, easy to use, and maybe require a little bit of training, but not much. So those could be something that you incorporate into practice. And I I actually did see a presentation about uh, someone using one of those smartphone-based ECG devices within a, a pharmacy to help identify patients. And then, you know, it's it's completely within the realm of possibility that a pharmacist could obtain a 12 lead ECG. If you have the equipment available, it's not that difficult to train someone how to do an ECG. And so that could be an option as well. 
the last thing I think you have to think about is when, or how do, you know, how are you going to incorporate into your your patient flow when you're seeing a patient? How does it fit into your routine? And, and that's probably something that's very individual to the practice of the pharmacist. Yeah, I think those are all all really great points. You know, when I think about me personally, how would I fit this in? I think working the patient up, thinking through the risk factors, the CHADS vast score, and using that as, as a main indicator for who I may or may not decide to screen. And then, you know, maybe a pulse palpation. And if something doesn't feel quite right, maybe referral to a PCP in the clinic to give further, further evaluation. I like, I like those ideas. Is there anything else that you think that as pharmacists, we should take into account before we start screening our patients for AIDS? Well, you kind of alluded to, I think, a, a really good point, and that is you can't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to start screening my patients with atrial, for atrial fibrillation because you might find somebody who has atrial fibrillation and then what? And so I think you have to think about what's the next step. When you do find a patient who has atrial fibrillation, you know, what can you do with that patient to make sure they get what they need? So you can certainly partner with the other clinicians in your clinic, whether it be a uh, a physician or a mid-level provider that can then go forward and take the steps needed to diagnose that patient's atrial fibrillation. And then you also might want to think of just kind of a process. Is there other testing needed? Do you need to assess other disease states? Things like that. So I think you need to kind of plan for what's going to happen next, because if you just kind of go in and say, I'm going to try and find patients with atrial fibrillation, then you might be scrambling to figure out what to do in order to get that patient what they need. Having a plan for closing the loop is certainly important. I think that's, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Kalis for joining us today. And thank you for tuning in for this session of Pharmacy Hot Topics. Don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com backslash NVAF for additional podcasts, webinars, and our expert commentaries. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official. 